0: Welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman. And this week, you know, after we turned our attention to events off the pitch, the pitched battle between ultras and the DFB last week, this week, we are back wholly attuned to the games, things happening on the pitch, you know, barring an international pandemic outbreak. Oh, wait. Uh, with me this week is Marie schulte uh, remotely. Of course, Talking Foosball is actually well ahead of its time when it comes to uh, COVID-19 preparedness. How are you doing over there at, at a safe distance, Marie?
1: Very well. I clean my hands with disinfectant just, between this, uh, just before this call in preparation. And I am in the safety of my own room.
0: Spectacular. Spectacular. This week, we are going to be shining a light on, you know, the COVID-19 coronavirus and the Bundesliga. We're going to be looking at uh, doings at the top of the table where things are shuffling one rung underneath the defending champions, uh, as well as uh, looking at a shooting star of a club who may or may not be on their way toward Europe, as crazy as that sounds. Don't go away. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball, the part in the podcast where we talk about the best of the match day that has just happened. This was match day 25. Uh, Maybe we can take a look at where the table stands after this match day just to remind folks of where things are. Uh, Bayern Munich still leading the field as... um, many of us have gotten so used to over the years, although we had a little break from it earlier this year. Uh, they are on top with 55 points, followed by Dortmund on 51, Leipzig 50, Leverkusen up to fourth on 47 points, Gladbach dropping down to fifth, 46 points, and Schalke, for you, uh, 37 points. So, uh, with all that in mind... Let's kind of look at the match that, that, that created the most uh, movement in that area. Let's look at Borussia Mönchengladbach's date with Borussia Dortmund. You know, the, the Borussen-Duell, as, as the Germans like to call it. Uh, this is a huge win for Dortmund, a 2-1 win in Mönchengladbach. I can't say that they were 100% worth their win uh, when it comes to uh, things like chances, or, or maybe, you know, if you're gladbach Persuasion, uh, luck with VAR, but this uh, this was definitely a, a gutsy win from Dortmund and one that is going to probably put them in the driver's seat for for getting back into uh, the title conversation. Torgan Azar, you know, the former foal. Uh, I, would, I would actually say his goal was the comeback performance of the weekend, considering how poor his first touch was on that uh, goal. He somehow was able to take two more touches and uh, set himself up in the box. So really beautiful goal after a really horrible uh, collecting of the ball. Lash evening it up early in the second half. He's pretty much on fire right now before... Hakimi uh, decided things late on. What did you make of this game? How much should we sort of put stock in Dortmund's getting this result? Maybe looking slightly less good than Gladbach over 90 minutes, but that's not how they were points in football. This is going to give them a lot of uh, confidence going into the derby against your boys.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think this was a gritty win, a tough win for Dortmund to get, and... Perhaps even more uh, important than the result and the three points was the manner in which they achieved this goal. Uh, Favre rested Jaden Sancho, which you know could have very badly backfired when you've got one of the hottest properties in European football in your ranks and someone extremely efficient as a preparer. You know he sets up goals and he scores them, but um, he you know Dortmund did very very well. Um, Chan. It surprised me, uh, Emre Can playing in midfield rather than in that back three. So I think that was a measure that Favre took to make the middle um, of the pitch even more compact. And um, yeah, I think Gladbach played very well. You know, they had some good moves going forward. I like the look of Ben Sivaini on the left. Um, I think he's a very good player, very dynamic, and often does well against uh, big opponents, namely FC Bayern.
0: <laughs> it seemed uh, Jaden Sancho really liked the look of uh, Ben Sabayini. He wanted to get up as close as he could
1: uh, to, <laughs> to have
0: a look at him in the second half when he finally got on the pitch.
1: Yes, I, I noticed that too. And, and fi- you know, that's also when we finally saw that reunion of um, Ashraf Hakimi and Jaden Sancho, which is just such an exciting pairing. And... You know, it's such a joy to see them. You know, they're kind of like two magnets that always pull at each other. um, And both of them together in some have been involved in more than half of Dortmund's goals all season, which is just insane for our two teenagers. So good on them. And um, actually, I think Hakimi might be 20 now. So excuse the teenager part. (laughs) Uh, So it can only, you know, best wishes to Dortmund that they can keep those two. I I think it's not hopeless, but it will, of course, be very tough with both of them. Yeah, being targets for many clubs. But to get back to this match, I thought uh, Dortmund did very well. I thought this was a mature performance and something that in Germany we call Meisterlich. So like, you know, basically champion like Um, this is a type of performance that Bayern pulls off many times um, each year, each season in and out. And um, that's how you get the points that help you at the end of the season.
0: Yep, yep, this was a champion-like performance, but, um, you know, we've seen not only uh, this year, which has been a bit of an up-and-down season, albeit at a very high level for Dortmund, but, you know, going back to last season when they had the upper hand for such a long time and then gave it up, sort of uh, blew it, pardon my French, um, this You know, they've got a long way to go before they get anything like a championship under their belt. And indeed, they have four points to make up to Bayern. How much do you trust them to actually put in a sort of legitimate challenge over the last, you know, nine games of the season that they have now?
1: Probably more so than I did a few months ago and a few weeks ago, to be honest. I was very skeptical around the winter break and also before, especially regarding the coach. I thought that as a motivator, um, he was not capable, although he might be capable as a tactician. And yeah, he's done a lot to remedy that conclusion I had, um, of course, with the help of the winter transfers of Emre Can and Erling Haaland. But Favre has learned um, from his earlier shortcomings And uh, after this match was the first time in a long time that he himself, rather than being pressed on it, said that they want to become champions and um, of of, of Germany of the Bundesliga. And that's something that didn't get enough enough attention in the press, in my opinion, because that for him, you know, he's this very introverted, calm Swissman, um, you know, who in another life would probably be making watches somewhere or something very meticulous and quiet. So. You know, I I think um, that's been a big turning point as far as Dortmund is concerned.
0: Yeah, I would have to agree. It seems like instead of, of taking that softly, softly approach, which in a lot of ways is more commensurate with the public persona of a guy like Lucien Favre, you know, kind of puffing up their chest a little bit, especially when they have, you know, as you already mentioned, they already had before they got erling holland uh two of the best teenagers in european football albeit you know one who maybe isn't a teenager anymore i mean this is a team that has a lot going for it and when they don't make dumb mistakes as they have let's face it too many times over the last couple of seasons they should not be out of the title race in this league i mean bayern are playing at a much higher level than than anybody at the moment, although this weekend wasn't the very best of, of Bayern, but leaving that aside. But Dortmund with the personnel that they have and with the sort of firepower that they have, they should definitely be up there challenging for the title.
1: I agree. And and to play devil's advocate on this one, you know, when you look at the remaining match days, Bayern still has to play Gladbach and Leverkusen two teams that they rarely look good against, where they often drop points. Then, of course, you have Dortmund v Bayern in Dortmund, which I really hope um, will take place in front of a full stadium rather than being a, a ghost match, as we call it in Germany, when there are no spectators. But, um, you know, the Dortmund-Bayern match is always kind of a tale of of two cities, um, so to speak, where often in the Westfalenstadion, Dortmund can really convincingly beat bayern and of course every time dortmund visits the allianz arena they get absolutely thrashed so i'm really interested how that will play out and even as a schalke fan you know i'm also a bundesliga fan and uh, an admirer of of dortmund's playing style so even as a schalke fan um i do hope that this will be a tight title race until the end
0: me too (laughs) um (laughs) before we uh before we start talking a little bit more about uh these these uh you know in German, you call them Geistespiele, as you mentioned, um, you know, ghost games or, you know, games behind closed doors. They seem to be piling up either in in reality or in, in the planning. We'll, we'll see where that goes in the coming days. There could be a lot of movement there. I do want to spare one quick thought to, um, to Gladbach coming out of this game because, you know, for me, this was the game that they absolutely had to sort of get a result in in order to, to sort of keep that upper hand in the title race because they have that game in hand as well and for them to play as well as this and not get a result at their home ground with some really good chances i mean you know they had some some chances which you know they could go in or they could not go in i'm thinking of things like the ben Cibaini shot in the first half that that came off the crossbar or you know Going, running the gamut all the way to the, the absolute gimme chances that they didn't convert, like Braille Envelopes just after he came on and he, you know, missed from about two and a half meters. I mean, this is going to be a game that keeps them up at night uh, moving forward if they don't qualify for the Champions League.
1: Yes, I agree. And it was disappointing for them because it's also a match that will have cost them a lot of energy because it was very physical. Um, with a lot of close, um, tight battles for the ball. And it's always a shame to lose the borussen duel, as we like to call it, because of the two Borussias at home to your own fans, in front of your own fans. And um, so I do you know, feel for them because they, they have played consistently well and perhaps been up there much higher than people would have expected early on in the season. Um, given the new coach and also the integration of some new players. But I, I think, you know, it will be a very, very tight race between Gladbach and Leverkusen because you're looking at two teams that have squads of similar qualities but that each rely on individual players. You know, in the case of Gladbach, that may be Stindl at the moment um, and at other times Player or Turam, of course, in the first half of the season. And for Leverkusen... You have Kai Havertz, who's basically the creative heart of that team, and then Diaby, who's playing quite well. But again, you know, these are both teams that are a bit volatile because they are so dependent on, on certain individuals.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, now I said that I wanted to talk about these uh, these closed door matches. Um, they really are starting to uh, proliferate. We're already getting talk of potentially Match Day 26 uh, being played behind closed doors. You know, across the country, um, UEFA has been taking steps. I mean, there have been a couple of couple of games that have already been declared. You know, Geisterspila in the Champions League, for example. Dortmund will be playing uh, in front of nobody uh, in Paris on Wednesday. But oddly enough, Leipzig are planning to play on as normal on Tuesday versus Spurs. I don't know what's happening with the the the. The Rhein Derby, which is going on on Wednesday, that makeup game from you know the uh, the game that was called off because of weather a few weeks ago. Do you think these are these are prudent and or you know commensurate moves from the Bundesliga? Are they being too cautious? Not cautious enough?
1: Well, Matt, you just used two very beautiful words: <laughs> prudent and commensurate. I like it. <laughs> <Okay>. Well, I <laughs> I think you know that Germany has a very localized approach to these questions and. As is the case in Italy, in Germany, you know, you have a very large country with 16 federal regions and each of these regions has suffered differently under coronavirus or not. You know, there is actually one region, Sachsen-Anhalt, in the former East Germany that doesn't have any confirmed cases yet.
0: Well, does anyone ever go in or out of that state? Right,
1: that's kind of of the thought. It's like even corona doesn't want to go there. Um, Yeah, so I think... Germany hasn't been as affected and of course that's also where Leipzig is located and Paris of course is really struggling which explains the cancellation of the PSG versus Dortmund tie which obviously is a, in my opinion a huge advantage to Dortmund to not have to play in front of the away fans there so it's it's a tough one I think um, Germany is being moderate and cautious without you know, um, letting themselves go to the hype. Um, And I I quite appreciate that. And at the moment, um, so Jens Spahn, who is the health minister for the whole of Germany, recommended yesterday that for the time being, I think he said for the next two weeks, all public events with more than a thousand participants should be cancelled. And now that was a policy recommendation, not um, an order. And the ministers of the different regions have responded in their own ways. So North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the most populous of the German regions and also the biggest football region with Dortmund, Schalke, Leverkusen, Gladbach, Cologne, to name a few, um, they have been most badly affected. And the minister there has said that he will follow the orders. And now, you know, if you follow that thought process, the conclusion is that those matches on the weekend will be... Um, occurring behind closed doors.
0: Yeah, yeah. This seems to me to be, um, I don't know, something that I that people have not really wrestled with this set of issues before. I mean, there's a lot of talk, you know, especially people who who feel that this is a a story that has been instrumentalized either in a geopolitical sense or a domestic political sense in whatever country you might be talking about. That this is too much uh, of a response. But I think the whole deal is that you know if you wait to react rather than get proactive you can get into real real trouble so i'm i'm kind of pleased to see this kind of reaction happening on this level like i think it's probably smart but it also raises the question of how long do you do it for? I mean, mm-hmm. we have heard from you know Christian Zeifert, the, the the DFL president, that you know he has pledged that the the remainder of the season is going to happen. It's going to get played out, but it does make me worried that a significant portion of it, if not you know, if, if you if you stop letting fans in on match day twenty six, when do you start letting them back in? Right,
1: and this is the hard of the season coming out now. You know, this is the good part, and it's a real shame. And, you know, it's already affecting, you know, you just have bizarre situations like in Freiburg um, on this match day, the referee, um, you know, there's the customary flip of the coin at the beginning of the match. And then the captains shake hands and shake hands with the four um, umpire staff. And in this match, the referee was just like, no, not shaking your hand. <laughs> and it was just...
0: Oh, yeah. It happened in Berlin as well. They, they, they fist bumped instead of uh, hands. <laughs> yeah, it was
1: just... I mean, these images are just incredible. So, yes, you know, we're all laughing. Um, and I'm definitely on the team that sends each other memes and laughs at this whole, you know, escalation of events. However, um, today we had the first two mortalities on German soil um, to senior citizens um in their 70s and 80s respectively who both were already sick um but you know this is what happens we, we do have to be realistic and you do have the elderly um and fragile members of society who are perhaps um more at risk with this um spread of of coronavirus so i do think it makes sense to take necessary precautions although i believe it's a real shame um for soccer
0: yeah, yeah, especially as we already mentioned with the uh, the Revier Derby coming up on, on the next match day, which is, you know, for most people's money, uh, at least within Germany, where, you know, things like the game that is sometimes called Der Klassiker, it's not really as big a deal culturally as, you know, the Revier Derby. I mean, the Schalke versus Dortmund is in many ways the biggest game of the year that or you know the two biggest games of the year of the season if whatever way you want to talk about it and the idea that that game in particular would be played you know cuz you know you know the sound of a of a geistespiel you've seen those in in europe before it's crazy everything just seems wrong
1: yeah and then you also know the sound of a derby you you, you hear the way fans the schalke fans singing wir sind schalke soziale schalke which is pretty much like we're dirty Schalke fans uh, and you know the self-mocking of we sleep uh, on, at train stations and under bridges and you know my heart just like just beats you know I just get butterflies when I hear that because it's such a beautiful mo- melody and uh, you have you know always fun costumes like one year the away fans in the Schalke fans in Dortmund they all wore, wore, wore like these white summer hats Um, so you just had like this really white section with blue underneath and these are things that people want to see and they want to hear and they want to smell and they want to experience that. And that's part of the derby, just as much as whatever happens on the pitch. And we know what kind of stories this derby has written, even in the past season where Schalke basically crushed the, the last hopes that Dortmund had to win the title. Then there was the 4-4 of course, my fav my favorite match of all time, <laughs> and then of course there might might have been a few you know a few occasions where Dortmund beat us as well. <laughs> um, you know there was the Batman mask of Obamiyang, so yeah, Lich, my heart rate's going up just thinking about these things. But in all of these pictures, you see fans, you see emotions, you see the players running into the crowd at the end of a match, and when they score a goal, and it is really really awful that we won't get that this weekend, and. To be frank, I was one of those people that kind of never associated corona coronavirus with soccer. Even when the cancellations were already occurring in Italy, I was like, nah, it's soccer, you know, it can survive anything. But this is just, you know, an indication that although it's the best game in the world, you know, it's only a game, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: and and, and it does take place in the world. Um, it, it feels <laughs> sometimes like a, uh, a sort of... You know, cultural artifact that that um, takes place on a like the level of heroes or the level of you know a glitzy television production, as in the the Champions League. But I think we're going to find out very fast that um, the the particular television show that is the Champions League is going to be significantly less fun uh, when you don't have the fans there providing that great backdrop.
1: Exactly, and honestly, I think that might be a good. Lesson to learn for some of the players and clubs as well. Yeah, because there is just there is just this notion that all of that is given, all of that's a given, and that's just what happens. And in Germany, a lot of fans make great financial and time sacrifices to to follow their teams. And um, I feel like it would do, you know, it would do us all good to to put a bit more um, of a focus on that. And what better way to do that than taking it away and wanting them to have it back. <laughs>
0: so h- how are you feeling about, you know, the, the, the sporting aspects of preparing for this derby? I mean, Schalke got a 1-1 draw uh, at home to Hoffenheim uh, leading up to this thing. Really, really nice goal from uh, Weston McKennie. I guess his first goal this season. And uh, one of these goals that sort of maybe is payback for all the near misses he's had earlier in the season. What, how, what did you make of this performance?
1: Yeah, this, this performance, I think, is step one on the way to recovery in many ways. Uh, Schalke got a really good first half where they really kept Hoffenheim at bay, um, kept the ball among themselves in their ranks, had a few very good chances. There was one moment where Kenny, John Joe Kenny, that is, um, was kind of at 30 degrees to the goal and um, had a shot from the right post. And um, parallel to him, or square as we, we like to say in, in sports, uh, was burgstaller in the middle. And it was just hilarious because, of course, Kenny shot at goal and didn't pass it across. And the commentator, I was watching this match, the commentator on Sky, the German TV channel, was like, you know, if he passes that to burgstaller it's a sure goal. And I was just sitting there saying, no! <laughs> <laughs>
0: Have you <laughs> watched course, him before?
1: <laughs> burgstaller never scores. <laughs> um, so... You know, I th- I thought that was quite a telling um, moment in the sense that, of course, Kenny also wanted to score because he's a you know red blooded footballer, as we like to say. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't think it would have gone any better if he'd crossed the
0: ball. Yeah, and I, I, that's a bit of a pet peeve of mine too. When when you know commentators talk about players failing to to play a ball square, because so many times when you actually look at the replay of those situations, the kind of like needle threading. Uh, pass that they would have had to play in order to get it exactly where it needed to go at the time is often the degree of good difficulty is extreme. Right. So I, I I don't know that particular scene off off the top of my head. I've only watched the highlights of it once. But sometimes when I hear that from a commentator, I'm kind of like, um, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> he wasn't going to get that pass in.
1: Yeah, and I mean, also technically, you know, if you're if you're sprinting at full speed with the ball at your feet it's much easier to execute that shot with the force that you already have in your legs rather than doing the, you know, side of the boot, subtle pass, you know, there we're talking like Hakimi, Sancho quality. And unfortunately that's not, um, you know, that's quite a rare skill and maybe not to be found in this Schalke squad um, with the exception of someone like Arit or Serda. Uh, but I think to get back to the performance, I, I think Schalke did quite well. McKinney um, had a very confident and assured uh, performance and what a goal, you know, he kind of dribbled past five defenders and then just slipped it into the bottom of the net, uh, the far corner, and then sprinted to the side of the field to hug the coach. This was the first goal that Schalke scored in four matches, which is obviously a terrible streak. And I um, took the liberty of comparing the current selection, um, you know, the, the selection that Wagner can make from his squad for the three offensive, the attacking positions. And basically you have Matondo, Kutuchu, Rahman, um, Burgstaller, and Gregoritsch for those um, striker roles. And it's just, you know, when you compare that to seven, eight, nine years ago when Chalgahad, had Jefferson Fafan, Raoul, Klaasian Huntler, Julian Draxler, it's just, I mean, uh, to me it's mind-boggling and it's it's a clear sign that this club has been very poorly managed because what has actually changed? You know, the fans are there. Financially, you know, nothing has changed. Um, the infrastructure has actually gotten better. Sponsoring deals have gotten better with Gazprom, for example. And it just makes me really mad um, as a supporter that, you know, and it makes me really question who who and why people get to lead a club, um, because it, it's just awful how players like that get to go. You know, Huntela was basically let go to Ajax, although he didn't want to go. Um, and it, it's just, you know, then you bring in, suddenly fans are happy when you loan a striker from Augsburg in the winter. You know, that, that's where Schalke is at um, when it comes to attacking play right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to think about that when you put it in those terms—the kind of you know personnel decisions and the quality of uh, recruitment that they have been looking into. I mean, you know, it wasn't that many years ago when you know for most teams a, a Schalke player was going to be out of their budget, and it just seems like over the past several years, just lots more teams have the capacity to get really good players. I mean, Gladbach, you know, six years ago. We're not in the market for the the kinds of players who who Schalke could pay for, and now even the likes of of you know Eintracht Frankfurt, who of course had their you know amazing trio of of, of attackers, or even you know look at the buys that Hertha put in in the winter. These are these guys, you know, Piotek and Cunha are better than all of your attackers.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I think there's something to be said for the infamous Umfeld, as we like to call it in Germany, the surroundings, the environment, basically. Of a club, because it is a you know repeated and oft known phenomenon at Schalke that Schalke sign good strikers, good Bundesliga quality strikers, and then they just deteriorate and suddenly don't perform when they're at the club.
0: Uh, I've got I've got a call um, from call from Mark <laughs> Oot for you. He's 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 calling in. Yes. Oh wait. No, he's, <laughs> he's 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 just gonna hang up and listen.
1: <laughs> you know I. I I actually texted a Cologne friend I have on Friday and I was like, what have you done to him? What have you fed Mark Ut? He's suddenly playing as efficient and creative as, as if he's like Marco Royce, you know? Obviously an exaggeration, but gets to the point because they play a similar position behind the strikers. And he responded, yeah, he's just trying to qualify for Europe. <laughs> it was just brutal. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, you've got Schalke going one way in the league table and Cologne going the other way. Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen this many times over the, y- the years, the likes of Panetta, Chupomuting, um, of course, the um, Franco Di Santo, a favourite of the podcast colleagues from Schalke America. Um, so, you know, it's just, I don't know who's to blame. Uh, clearly, there are many factors but it's very, very frustrating as a supporter um, to see the diminishing quality of of Schalke's attacking play over many years.
0: All right. Well, uh, as it looked like we're going to be heading into a you know a behind closed doors derby, we might as well bring up uh, what what the Schalke fans brought to the table uh, in this one, as far as uh, the the ongoing fight between the DFB and the ultras. Um, it was basically put into black and white that, uh, the ultras needed to refrain from, um, you know, direct, you know, sort of off color insults to particular figures, <clears throat> <Deep mar-hop. laughs> uh, or putting anybody's face in the crosshairs. This was sort of, you know, pointed out to them as, as their two, uh, sort of bright lines that would not be crossed without some sort of game interruption, uh, the Schalke fans, among many other fans in the league, found some creative ways to uh, to, to to get around that. We had uh, them saying, "We ask forgiveness from all the whores with whom we connected, uh, Mister Hop." <laughs> uh, you know, leaving aside the, the 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 you know the connotations of of the term whores, uh, which is not great, certainly in English. I thought that was you know. Uh, Halfway clever way of of getting around the 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 the, the rules without um, leaving the sentiment behind. Did, did you see some other other banners around the league, which um, kind of gave gave the lie to the idea that all these these ultras are just knuckle draggers?
1: Definitely. I mean, also in midweek in the DFB Pokal of Schalke um, Schalke versus Bayern Munich, the fans had a banner. Uh, which was critical, it perhaps wasn't humorous, but it was critical. And it said, you know, your words are full of um, hu- hubris and cannot be taken serious when you have a racist sitting on the board. Of course, taking a stab at Clemens Tönius and his comments about Africa and children in the summer. And they have a point, to be frank. You know, it, it's... The the fans, they, they get a stake. Um, they contribute so much to football, especially the ultras And I I don't think they should be painted with with one brush as a stupid or old fashioned or, you know, I think that's not fair. And there were some very humorous banners, Freiburg, which as a university town and, you know, always as the underdog of the Bundesliga, where every year with low means uh, and Christian Streich, they somehow managed to stay up. Very, um, actually, like very, very sweet club that gets a lot of sympathies from from other regions of Germany. They had a banner which um, was a bit of a wordplay on Hurensohne which is um, "sons of bitches" or "sons of whores um, as we've heard Dietmar Hub being uh, insulted as last match day. So there was wordplay between that word and Hurensohne uh, "Uhren" meaning watches. Um, so. Sons of Watches, <laughs> which was a very nice um, dig at the DFB um, that has had its fair share of watch related scandals. Most yep. recently, Reinhard Grindel, the DFB president, who was forced to step down last year, of course, because he accepted a watch um, from an oligarch that could have been interpreted as a bribe. And uh, also Rummeniger, who last match day was very. Um, you know, very intense in his criticism of the Bayern fans uh, and also labelling them all in one term. But who himself has smuggled Rolex watches into Germany in the past. So, you know, they, they said, um, I think the banner said, ihr um, seid alle Uhrensöhne, comma DFB. Like, hey, DFB, you're all sons of watches, you know, whatever. It, it's not as funny when you could say it in English, obviously, because it doesn't rhyme. Uh, but I thought that was quite clever um and generally i think the fans did a something good to calm the situation by you know being humorous about this um sticking to their message sticking to their guns but not um causing any further provocations and also you know you gotta consider this also not causing any um delays or interruptions or even cancellations cancellations of matches
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I feel like much much of the sort of storm of, like, I don't know, kind of
1: indiscriminate
0: calumny that that was happening in the German media, where they were just sort of talking about people as, you know, hooligans or so-called fans, all that stuff that gets wheeled out whenever there is quote-unquote fan trouble uh, in Germany. It's just dumb. I mean... You know, you can use that sort of stuff if you're talking about violence, if you're talking about pitch invasions, if you're talking about, you know, racist or homophobic language, just stuff that really is, you know, sort of against what people in a modern society should be doing. But when it's actual sort of freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, freedom of, you know, argumentation is what's happening here, even if that argumentation takes an ugly face at times. To call these people just a bunch of dummies or a bunch of uh, you know jerks who don't understand that football needs to be about football and football can't be all about culture uh, doesn't really work. That's that's it's a terrible argument that, I t- that it seemed to be getting put around and especially the the, the rights holders people like uh, people like Sky Germany uh, as well as uh, the, the tabloid press. It was very disappointing.
1: Yes, and I think you know they were also. Labeled basically as violent aggressors for the comment that the Bayern away fans made against Hoffenheim in Hoffenheim Stadium against the DFB, um, using the example of Hop. So that happened last match day, and I, th- I bluntly, I-, I think that's insulting to, you know, real victims like Nariga um, at the Schalke Stadium, who was a victim of racism. Uh, where when that happened, everyone was like, "Oh, sorry about that. Carry on." And, you know, there were journalists questioning whether it even happened. You know, you know why take the word of a 21-year-old who's going to burst into tears on the pitch when you can just say, oh, Schalke has nice fans, or, oh, I didn't hear anything. I was standing 200 meters away, but I didn't hear anything. Uh, that makes me really mad because I think there are actual problems in the stadium, such as homophobia, misogyny, racism, any form of discrimination against players, fans, or any member... Of this globe, the soccer globe that we all love, and then you know you have this one incident where the fans take a stab against the DFB and against a billionaire club owner of Hoffenheim, and they make the mistake of using um, "son of a bitch" as an insult, and suddenly you've got journalists, club owners, everyone calling the fans you know terrible words like racist and. I, I just think um, you know there was such a discrepancy um, in the way that this was done, and it was actually very dishonest. Yeah,
0: I agree. Um, I want to leave that topic behind because I think I think um, we've we've probably uh, discussed it for long enough. But I I want to talk with you a little bit about the uh, the opinion piece that you wrote this past week that you wrote for International Women's Day uh, on Focus Online, where you kind of make the argument that really one of the biggest problems in football, not only in in the way that football is covered and it's governed, but just all of it is, you know, the, the absolute lack of any kind of, of gender parity. I mean, there's been tons of arguments, especially on this side of the Atlantic about, you know, pay disputes, especially in the, in the circumstance of the, the U S men's and women's national teams, especially because one's really good and one's not really good. Um, But, the fact that, you know, even in a country like Germany, which has, likes to think of itself as a, as a sort of progressively minded country with fairly um, forward thinking social values that, what, what was the number of, of participants within uh, the DFB? One in seven or some, some ridiculous number that are women?
1: Yeah, so the DFB, the, the German um, Football Association, is the largest sporting association in the world. And it's got 7.7 million members. Um, so that is anyone who plays football in a club, uh, for example, anyone who volunteers for a club, which is a lot. There's a lot of uh, volunteers um, in Germany who do things for free um, and for their passion. And 7.7 million, you know, you got to think Germany has 83 million people. That's basically one in 10 people. That's a, an incredible number. And um, of those 7.7 million, 1.1 million today are women. Um, and many, in many cases, they um, take their children to matches, take other children to matches, bake, you know, these feminine things, but they're also getting involved in the organization um, of clubs, of matches, and they're rising up on a local level. Um, statistically, you know, one 1.1 million women as a fraction of 7.7 7 million members means that one in seven people um, in Germany of of football fans are female and uh, I think that's a lot and that's just not being represented in the Bundesliga in the higher um, ranks of of European football where um, the anti discrimination network um, an NGO has found out that of top positions in European football only 3.7 percent are currently filled by women and I really don't want to point any fingers or say, me, 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 or complain. I honestly just think that um, there's a lot to be gained because I think that women bring a different perspective to the table. I think women are different to men. Um, they bring different qualities to the table. As any large company or small company knows, um, you know there are all these reports, um, psychological reports, business reports that a balanced boardroom or um, a table with at least one woman involved will come to decisions in a different way. Um, actually, Fortune 500 companies, there has been a report that those that have women on their boards actually do better on the stock market. <laughs> so just these incredible things. Um, and I think more, not to you know be too cliche, but more feminine qualities like communication, the ability to compromise, empathy, Um, sensitivity, listening, these things that sometimes um, people use in a condescending way towards women. I think these are all qualities that could help the DFB, the German um, football association a lot in very troubled times.
0: For sure. For sure. And I mean, I also find that, um, and and I guess I can only speak from experience having worked in a few um, newsrooms, especially sports newsrooms, which are so often sadly uh, dominated by men. I mean, the introduction of women to any, you know, workflow, to any meeting, to any, you know, shift, almost always results in a positive, less sort of grossly competitive and, um, I don't know, sort of coarse atmosphere. I mean, sometimes it, it can even just improve the, like, perception of of, of men towards their work. I mean, it, it's, it's like... There's just something that happens with social dynamics when it's not a boys' club anymore. And mm. most of those things are very positive.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I, I saw that even in my own work life. Um, first of all, I've got to say I always felt very fairly treated um, as a sports journalist. And I can encourage any women who may be listening um, to to try this career. Because at least in Munich, where I worked with Focus Online, I never had any bad incidents. You know, I was always welcomed very warmly at press conferences, for example, by Nico Kovac or Joachim Löw, who were always, I think, surprised and thrilled to see a woman ask them a question. And I was always treated with a lot of respect um, and care by my colleagues. And I do think, like you said, that sometimes women have a different view of football as well. I think, for example when I look back at my time, I, I once wrote a piece, um, a more like a psychological profile of the Italian football legend Gigi Buffon, the goalkeeper, who um, had spoken very openly in the Italian media about his own battle with depression and how um, looking at pictures of Chagall, um, you know, paintings by Chagall um, in a gallery helped cure him and meditation. And I think these are aspects of the game that often fascinate female readers, but actually... You know, can bring something to any reader and show that show another side of of football. Um, often, of course, also the women, um, the wives, and the girlfriends of the players play such an important role in, in the game right now. And that's something that I naturally have more on an eye on than than other people do. And um, I, I really think also the emotional and the political side of the game is something that always caught my attention. I can't speak for all women if all women see that similarly, but football is such a such a mirror of society and society is diverse and colorful and and female and male and i just think that I would like to see that reflected better, better in this game that everyone loves and watches.
0: Yeah. We've, uh, we've, we've retweeted that uh, particular opinion piece already on our Twitter feed. If you feel like checking it out, uh, as it'll, you'll especially get something out of it. If you read German, even if you don't, you can probably figure out uh, a way in this day and age to figure out what Marie is saying in her piece. It was very worth a read. We're going to take a quick break now and we will come back with the rest of match day 25. Okay, here comes the rest of match day 25. Um, I think the place that I want to start is um, the team who we sort of pointed out at the top of the show. And we've made a couple of oblique mentions toward them about how well they've been doing lately and what their future might hold. This is turning into an, a crazy story in, in the Bundesliga Cologne. The Cologne, they just keep on climbing. It seems like, aside from Bayern and Dortmund, nobody can beat them. <laughs> you know, they had an absolutely sumptuous goal from distance. They're not just scrapping out wins. They are starting to play really good football. Um, Jonas Hector had this crazy on the run goal from the edge of the box. They just mopped the floor It with Paderborn. It was a two, one win, but it felt like more.
1: It did feel like more. I watched that match. And even as you said, the result just then I was like, huh? <laughs> Cause in my mind it was like three, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, they, they're playing incredibly well, and I've really enjoyed watching them lately. I also have to say that just a lot of things are going right at that club. They, pretty much out of desperation, around November, started playing some of their youth talents. And Cologne in the under-19 and under-7 championships in North Rhine-Westphalia in the west of Germany is doing very, very well. So they have a lot of um, young blood, as we like to say, coming up. And some of those players, you know, really, um, when they got thrown in the water, they really swam. And um, one is Noah Katabach, um, who is a defender, a fullback, so to speak, who unfortunately got injured two games ago. But there was this insane statistic where whenever he started a match, Cologne got 2.3 points on average. You know, so basically almost winning um, every match. And when he didn't, they, they got zero point seven points from a match, which is insane. Um across, you know, a length of eleven matches or so. Um and then you've got Ismail Jakobs, who I really like the look of. He's a left wing back. Um in a similar mold in terms of skills, I would say to Philip Kostic, in the sense that like the Frankfurt player, they both like to drive down the left flank um and cross the ball in and also run back and recover balls. And I think he's a big talent. He's young. He's 18. And, you know, they, they're just doing really well. Uh, Mark Oud in the winter. What a story. You know, he, he is from Cologne. That's where um, he first signed a pro contract. Then, of course, went to the Dutch League and came back um, to Cologne via Hoffenheim and Schalke. Um, and he's a bit of like a lost son of the city because he was not very well liked at Schalke. He was always injured. He didn't meet the expectations set in him and now he's got I think seven goals and assists together as a tally uh, which is just incredible and um, you know that's Jaden Sancho type numbers and he's playing behind um, the strikers and really using that role to roam freely and create chances and just his body language seems so free um, so light-hearted and it's, it's really nice to see him do so well.
0: Uh, We got a listener question from Ahmad Balbaid in Atlanta. Uh, And and this this question, I I don't want to assume that you're a a Cologne fan necessarily, Ahmad, but it is such a Cologne fan question that I love it. (laughs) It says, are Cologne back to being a Bundesliga powerhouse and would qualifying for Europe be good for them? I mean, he's not getting ahead of himself, is he? (laughs)
1: I like that second question Because he isn't asking Will they qualify But would it be good for them Of course it would be good for them It's a very euphoric Emotional club At the start of every season The Cologne fans gather In Cologne Cathedral And pray with the bishop You know for happiness And success (laughs) And peace (laughs) On and off the football field Um, And with Carnival Obviously it's a huge deal they always had their special carnival jerseys and everyone dresses up and goes to the match in costume. And it's a special club, you know. Then they've got the, the mascot of the goat. And I think we're now at the 11th actual goat. You know, there's always an actual animal in the stadium. <laughs> I hope that doesn't stop, by the way, despite any activism. I think that those goats get t- taken very good care of. Um, so, yes, it would be great for them to qualify for Europe and it would be good for the club. I just don't think it is realistic, unfortunately, Um, because I think there are clearly better teams and that even this run might stop eventually. But, you know, Hoffenheim, Wolfsburg, Schalke, um, Leverkusen, Gladbach, the, the teams that are above them are just stronger. So I I don't think they will qualify. And I am afraid I forgot the first question that the reader had, Matt.
0: Oh, it was, uh, are they back to being a Bundesliga powerhouse? I'm I'm not sure when that was exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the seventies, Wolfgang Overath and those uh, people who are now, you know, gray foxes, but it's good to have them back. Um, I think like, like Hamburg, like um, HSV, the, the Hamburg club, Cologne is a club that belongs in the Bundesliga, in my opinion, and um, that's where they shall probably stay.
0: Yep, this season. Yep, and 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 that's a really really good thing. They they're a, a real enrichment for the league. Um, let's let's zoom in a little bit on some of those teams between Cologne and Europe. Um, we did get Wolfsburg uh, earned themselves a point this weekend. They got a point off of uh you know or I guess they split the points with Leipzig. Kind of a, you know, it's a nil-nil draw. It's probably a game that, you know, knowing the brief, knowing who Wolfsburg are, knowing how they play, they probably may maybe even set out to get a nil-nil draw in this game. Real shame for Leipzig, though, falling off the pace uh, as as they are in a way. They, they've drawn two matches now. I mean, two matches with good teams, but it's not a great way to, uh, you know, stay... Up in the top four and maybe even the top two, if that's where you want to be.
1: Exactly. I think also something that is a bit alarming is that uh, Patrick Schick and uh, Yusuf Paulsen were not able to fill the void left by Timo Werner, and that's um, surprising because usually Leipzig, you know, they have such such quality in their squad. Um, even I mean, even or especially in attack. Also, Nkunku is a, a huge talent. Danny Olmo. Um, and I really thought that there are other potential goal scorers. Sabitzer, who's doing very well right now. And yet, not to score against Wolfsburg. I mean, Wolfsburg does have a very good defence, but this is RB Leipzig we're talking about. This is Nagelsmann, who can prepare both as a motivator and as a tactician, to get back to Favre earlier. He can prepare his team against any opponent. And it's just... It seems a little bit weak to, to, you know, it really feels like they're letting something slip through their fingers here. It reminds me a little bit of what happened to Dortmund this time last year, where they really kind of messed it all up in the spring, um, you know, the late winter, early spring. And as a neutral observer, you just sometimes, you know, you put your, put your hands against your forehead and you just think, why, why, <laughs> why can you not just score or, you know, get those three points in any way possible um, and of course, you know, losing two points when the top of the table is that close is, is really disappointing for Leipzig.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. This doesn't seem like um, things are quite turning out how they wanted them to. Uh, another team in between Cologne and, and the, the European uh, places would be SC Freiburg. Um, they certainly got a big win this week and a 3-1 win uh, at home to uh, Union Berlin. Mostly down to you know taking their chances well and um, just sort of having having a bit more luck in front of goal maybe. How do you like their chances uh, of of actually dragging themselves back into that European conversation? They've kind of been taken lightly all year.
1: Sure. Yeah, I remember an earlier podcast this season where we were both astounded that they just kept going and we thought that they would break at any match day i think they're doing extremely well freiburg to me is a team that does incredible things at home they're a very strong team at home and it is incredibly difficult for teams to play in freiburg in that small stadium it's actually the measurements of the pitch which is very odd but an odd fact are 0.5 meters so half a meter too narrow <laughs> So that's just, I mean, it's crazy that that kind of thing gets allowed, but I guess that's what makes it such a particular club. Um, and they do have some good players. You know, Charlois, um had a really good game, scored a goal, his first goal um, of the season. He's uh, still quite quite a young player um, and someone to look out for in, in uh, the attacking end of, of things. And Christian Günther, the captain, had a very strong uh, match, scored a really nice goal from distance. So... I I think there is a little bit of hope to be had for the fans, but I think for them, it would be a success to finish in the upper half of, of the league table, you know, whether that be ninth or eighth, I think that would be a a huge achievement for them. I I don't see them making the Europa League uh, places.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, speaking of Europa League, I I don't think we've brought this up when we were talking about all these uh, coronavirus uh, issues. It's just come across my attention that that um, Eintracht, who of course were four nil losers in Leverkusen, a real, they got really dismantled uh, by by Leverkusen this weekend. not only did Kai Havertz get a, a, a goal again, but you know Paulinho, yes, that Paulinho, the one who has done <laughs> almost nothing in a year and a <laughs> half with Leverkusen, suddenly got a start, and uh, it turns out he's incredibly good. Uh, he got two goals and an assist. Um, things are definitely coming together at the right time for Leverkusen, as we sort of uh, paid some mention to before. But it looks like Eintracht's game uh, against FC Basel uh, is not only not going to be played in front of fans, but not played at all on Thursday. And might, you know, both legs be moved to Frankfurt or some, some strange uh, solution? That That um, is a definite cloud hanging over uh, Eintracht's season at the moment.
1: Yeah, and I'm not... I'm going to say anything else because there's just no um, clarity no decision to be made yet and I don't want to speculate Um, I think you've phrased it really well there's no assurance yet what will happen or where it may happen it's just such a shame because we know what Eintracht Frankfurt fans do in the Europa League what they bring to that competition and it's just so sad to see all these implications of the coronavirus now unfold
0: Indeed. A few minutes ago, we were talking about um, Union Berlin's loss to uh, Freiburg. Um, I'm, of course, excited about it because it means in only two match days, potentially, potentially, if Hertha can get a result next week, they might still be within striking distance of overtaking Union, which is really the last straw of... Actual success that we could grab onto this season. I mean, you know, the obvious one being, let's not go down. But, you know, overtaking Union would, would, you know, probably be the sweetest uh, juice we can get from any berry. (laughs) Weird, weird results. Again, uh, another week, another comeback from an early 2-0 deficit for Hertha. Um, This was a 2-2 draw in this case. But, you know, a draw against another uh, direct relegation rival. Not the greatest thing in the world. Of course, not really great for Bremen either. They're still stuck uh, down in the bottom two. This was a really sad game in a lot of ways. Um, sad, from my perspective, because, you know, Hertha basically gave away two extremely soft goals um, in, in the first 10 minutes. I don't want to take away Josh Sargent's shine. His goal was, you know, just as as juicy as Weston McKenney, You know, big ups to... U.S.M.N.T.
1: U.S.A. <laughs> um, yeah, but
0: but the reason why he got that shot off as as well as he did is because no one no one closed him down. No one closed him down. Not they weren't even late closing him down. They just didn't close him down. And that second goal was just foolish. So basically, another incredibly winnable game. Another good second half performance that got them back into the driver's seat. Maybe could have won the game if they had you know pressed a little harder on the gas pedal. But, you know, you, you can't have a lot of complaints when you give away two goals in the first 10 minutes two weeks in a row. And when you look at it from the other side of the coin, from the Verde side of the coin, and, and Florian Kofelt said the same thing more or less after this game, you know, Verda were good. Verda were better for the first 15, 20 minutes, not just the first, you know, nine minutes when they scored their goals. They, you know, they got into this game faster than Hertha did and then somehow just shut off. They were pretty bad for most of the rest of the game yeah so there's no wonder why these two teams are where they are
1: definitely I mean as a neutral football fan I actually disagree I think this would have been a very fun match to be a part of (laughs) I think I would have really enjoyed myself in the Olympia Stadion um, because it was just pure entertainment and you know it was like a Greek tragedy with the start and then the recovery and Werder happy and then Hertha happy and one thing i got to say to Hata's credit, this, this is not a dead team, you know. Mm-hmm. This is the second time they've come from behind to equalize um, a, a long, you know, a big um, um, de- deficit. Like, you know, they were two goals behind last week, they were three goals behind. So it's really impressive. And I think Cunha, I, I'm really enjoying him. He's, he's kind of a dirty striker in the sense that he, you know, puts his body into the tackle he, he's the type of player that does things when the referee's not looking. Um, but he's also, like, so dynamic and he's got such a great centre of gravity. He often um, has these little turns where, you know, any normal-bodied person would be like, how are you not on the floor right now? And then he somehow spins and shoots. So I think he's, he's really flourishing um, in Berlin, really liking to see his... I'm really enjoying seeing that progress. Um, and yet, with Hertha... Sometimes when you watch highlights, especially, and you have that aerial view of what's going on when they concede goals, it's like a training session, you know? You have the two lines of defense. You've got the four, and then in front of them, you've got four. And they just stand there and do not move. It's like someone's just put poles in the grass, like when you're practicing a free kick or when you're practicing a dribble, and you just have a, a thin pole standing there that you just have to get around. And that's basically how it does defense right now. So I, I don't know how they can improve that, but it's pretty horrible when you've got Pjontek and Cunha constantly having to score <laughs> all the goals that the other side of the team, you know, in simplified terms, because of course it's one team, but that the other side of the team concedes.
0: Yep. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about Matthias Cunha. And I think that um, <laughs> if Hertha can stay up, if they can sort of get it through their heads that this is the guy that you need to build the team around. And that that doesn't just mean, you know, personnel in terms of who the new signings are, but like when they figure out who is going to be the next coach, the first, you know, one of the first questions they need to ask those people is what are you going to do with Mateusz Cunha? Cause it looks to me like this is a guy who could, could take over games week after week. And I'm, you know they haven't really figured out how to make that happen on a consistent basis he just sort of manages to do it at times but yeah. if he actually gets service if there's actually a team you know built to to play to his strengths and and connect him to the team it's kind of a broken team at the at, at the minute uh tactically something good could eventually happen um i guess the one the one sort of silver lining other than you know for neutrals this was entertaining and yeah to you know, to be honest, it was entertaining for me, at least. The fact that uh, Hertha didn't lose was that uh, results elsewhere were not super unkind for them. I mean, Augsburg uh, lost to to Bayern. You know, that was more or less what what most of us expected to happen, despite the fact that Augsburg were the home team. In fact, they oddly enough fired uh, Martin Schmidt following that game. I guess. In my mind, that has to mean that they have someone in mind who they think is going to be significantly better, uh, ready to go, rather than let's just go searching blindly for a new coach because this guy is untenable. Uh, And also Mainz and Dusseldorf drew 1-1, which means that none of them sort of uh, took flight, you know. Came and and perhaps they could have you know Mainz could have gone level on points with Hertha or, or Dusseldorf could have uh, dragged themselves out of that relegation playoff spot. They're kind of stuck where they are. So you know for both Hertha and for Bremen, um, those other results were not were not the worst.
1: Yep, yep, definitely. And you know it's these are also two um, very traditional clubs that have long histories and have have been in the Bundesliga. Um, you know very often over a long uh, pe- you know long era of time um in the not too far future uh, not too far past, so to speak, <laughs> tripping over my words here a little bit um so i'm I'm hoping that um especially in the case of Vera bremen sorry matt they they managed to stay in
0: <laughs> oh no they, they have a better history than we do <laughs> yeah <laughs> for um, sure
1: definitely all
0: right that that almost wraps it up, but I do understand that um do you want to talk a little bit about Bayern and their their 2-0 win over Augsburg? I, I misspoke earlier. This was in Munich. How could I forget Bayern had you know th- their Sunday best on, ready to, to take on their intra-state rivals?
1: Yeah, so for Bayern, this was a very special match uh, to mark their 120th anniversary. They were founded in 1900. And as someone who lives in Munich, I've seen the celebrations. You have banners everywhere in the city, kind of in this really pretty golden red art deco look to reminisce about that era and uh, what a club this has become. You know, uh, you've got to pay tribute to them, Um, not just sport in terms of sporting and cultural terms, but historically they've also done a lot for tolerance um, and they've done a lot in remembrance of some of their early members and founders. Bayern um, had, uh, for example, a big um, Jewish um, standing and identity, one of their first presidents was, was Jewish and actually got persecuted, um, in the second world war. And they've always, um, is his name. They've always marked his memory. And in this match anyway, to get back to sports, they wore these beautiful vintage retro jerseys. And it was very tasteful because in keeping with how things were in the good old days, Um, the sponsors in this case the mobile company telecom t-mobile was not um, seen on the jersey it was very faintly printed in a slightly darker shade of white onto the white jersey and um, you had red kind of bordeaux red sleeves and then the old um, club logo that I believe was the first club logo which again had that kind of art deco font to it Um, so as, as maybe a woman, <laughs> as someone interested in design elements of the game, I thought this was really classy and they just look good. I also liked that the back of the jerseys you had in big terms, the number of the player. So, you know, 18, for example, and then the name of the player in capital letters on top. I really like that. I don't get why clubs now find it fashionable to put the name of the club on top of the number and then in small letters, the, the name of the player when everyone knows that you know who they play for. Everyone gets what the club is trying to do, you know collective over individual, but I just don't like it. I think it, it looks terrible and it's not practical for the fans in the stadium who maybe just want to see who a player is when he's dribbling the pole down the pitch. So I think this was a really nice match for Bayern. There was a 360 degrees choreo that the fans did. Um, every single spectator in the stadium was involved in this and was really beautiful. If you haven't seen it, Google it, look at those photos. And um, yeah, in sporting terms, one thing that came to my attention today is that Leon Goretzka um, is making um, some demands (laughs) and has got himself um, told off by Hasan Salihamidzic, the sporting director. Because Goretzka, of course, is in very good form, scoring a lot of goals, but has lost his starting slot in the lineup to Thomas Müller. And um, that will be interesting to see what happens there next, especially with some very big games coming up for Bayern Munich um, in the next few weeks.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, th- there's plenty of games to go around in the Champions League and the Bundesliga. I- I just sit tight. Sit tight, Leon.
1: Sit tight, Leon. Yep. <laughs> I agree. All
0: right. That is all for this edition of Talking Football, which was produced, as always, by Aidan Rantoul. Great to have you back on the podcast, Marie.
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. I was really glad to be on, and I look forward to the derby that may or may not happen in front of the empty or not so empty yellow wall on the weekend.
0: Indeed, indeed. It's uh, I, I don't. I guess, I guess the wall would not be yellow. It'd be more sort of a concrete <laughs> colored, uh, colored situation. Uh, you can follow Marie on Twitter, of course, at Marie Shubo, and you can read her work on Focus Online, including the uh, the opinion piece on gender inclusivity in football, uh, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast. That's in German, but, you know, we've got technology to read uh, a sort of semblance of what she meant, uh, if you don't read that language. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your pods, uh, and it would be cool if you told a a German football-loving friend about us. We're always looking for new people to listen and to feedback and get in touch. Talking foosball fantasy with uh, James Thurgood and Flo Reinica. They'll be back in action later this week. This to next and y'all.